All right, we have got Jake with us today, formerly a vice war correspondent, no longer with them, and he has a unique YouTube channel with a variety of subject matter because he says he's got an addiction to watching crazy shit on YouTube. And if you go to his channel, it made me smile this morning, and we just watched it again, I'll probably watch it again tonight, is the Hasidic Ravers. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> good lads, they're good lads, they're good lads, yeah. I urge you, for copyright reasons, we cannot put the Hasidic ravers on the screen right now, just going off. Um, but I urge you, if you want to smile during these dark pandemic times, go down to his channel. The link is in the description box below the video. Watch the Hasidic ravers. Please subscribe, subscribe to what he's doing. And um, there's some dark content matter as well, including... Satanic Nazis. Is it O nine A? Is that how it's pronounced? Yeah, O nine A, yeah. Order of Nine Angles. Yeah, it's weird <sighs> cult group. Yeah. This is right up the street of yeah. my viewers. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> I'm sure someone's gonna go down and, and, and click on what you're doing. Yeah, it's weird. All right, so this started out as a prison channel, and Jake has been in prison in Turkey. Not what? as a criminal, I might add. <laughs> not, I actually didn't do anything wrong. I was uh, not not arrested for any real reason, you know what I mean? It was quite a big case because I saw it in the news. Mm. Go on then, let's start with that. What 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 happened? Why, why were you in Turkey and how did you get arrested? Yeah, so I was filming with um, Kurdish militants. So basically in, in Turkey, there's millions of Kurds live there. And they're, they're, I think they're the largest, um, like ethnic group without a homeland, right? So the Kurdistan is split up between um, Northeast Syria, Southeast Turkey, Iran, Iraq. So in Southeast Turkey, there's a, you know, a resistance group because the, you know, famously, um, no matter what they want to say, the Turkish government have been oppressing the Kurds in a brutal way, you know. They weren't allowed to even speak their own language at home, you know, they weren't even allowed to call themselves Kurdish. So obviously over the years, there's been a lot of um, fighting between the two. So I was filming with um, a militant group called the PKK, the Kurdistan Workers' Party. They basically fight against the government. And there was a youth wing, and I'd been filming with them a few times. You know, they'd been setting up roadblocks, saying, like, no, nah, we're going to take our land back. And then a war kicked off, basically. So I was filming with them, like, very kind of close quarters, urban combat. You've got, like, teenagers with, you know, small arms, like AKs, what have you, fighting you know, governments with tanks. I mean, it's NATO's second largest army. You know what I mean? It was a mad situation. Um, and anyway, basically, after filming that for a while, um, we got picked up by the police and they, like, arrested us on terrorism charges. And I was like, what Like, what do you mean? Like, oh, slow down, slow down. When you say you got picked up by the police, yeah. where, where were you? So we went to, like, one area um, called Diyarbakir, which is, like, to, 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 to put it in context, there was, like, one part of the southeast where the militants had basically taken over. It's like they'd taken it, essentially. But then there's other parts where they were trying to. So some areas they had it, some areas they didn't. In that area is where we got picked up. We're driving back home. We've been filming with the with the militants, and then we drove to, like, a hotel. Please come, like, arrested us, get out. I was like, what? <laughs> like, what do you mean we're terrorists? Like, you know, I've never fired a gun in my life. I'm not a criminal, not a terrorist. But in the eyes of the state, you film with terrorists you're a terrorist now. So wow. basically, they wanted to stop us filming. You know, what do these guys look like, the Turkish police? 
I mean, just normal. I mean, they weren't the John Dams, right? So the John Dams are the guys that are kind of militarized. They're the guys that, that were fighting with the militants. These guys were anti-terror. Normal clothes, plain clothes, everyone with bloody sunglasses on, you know what I mean? <laughs> Jump out. They, I mean, they weren't like armed arm. They had sidearm, you know, pistol. Yeah. And it wasn't like, get on the floor. Like, it wasn't mad. They were just like, come with us, talk to us. And then they're like, right, you're, you know, blah, blah, terrorists. And we're like, this is madness, whatever. Got into the cells. We thought we'd be out no time. Like, cause, like I said, we'd done nothing. So did they, did they have to, like, process you before the cells? Or did you go straight to some cell? Went straight to, like, these, like, anti-terror holding cells, basically. What did they look like? I mean, it was grim, you know. <laughs> I mean, it, and there was so many of the youth as well. So many of the militants had been arrested that it was like, there was three of us and two of us were in a one-man cell, you know what I'm saying? So there was like, it was quite cramped. Um, and then our mate was in another cell next to us. It was pretty grim, like, I'll be honest. Um, everyone says like, oh, was it like Midnight Express? No, it wasn't <laughs> like Midnight Express. It's a bit rubbish, you know what I mean? Like, it weren't ideal. I don't, don't recommend it, you know what I'm saying? But it was grim. But like, initially, like, the police were like, horrible. And then it kind of... When you say the police were horrible, how did they demonstrate that to you? They were just like calling us terrorists and stuff, you know, like really assuming like we were trying to, you know, I've got nothing against Turks, you know, obviously like we're filming and it's the government versus the militants is a very different situation. And at the end of the day, I've been filming that all over the world, wherever there's a militant group, particularly rebel groups, that's what I'm interested in. That's what I go and report on. And the way I do my work, I want to be with them, right? I want to be embedded with them. I don't want to film on a long lens from 20 miles away, I want to hear what they've actually got to say. So they're just saying like, there's no way you could have got this close to them. Because a lot of people, especially the way they've been conditioned working with the police, they see them as these are completely evil, they're terrorists. But when you meet them, they're young lads, they're disenfranchised, you know, they're friends that are all dead because of the war. Mm. And they're just normal lads. They're not tough guys as well. This is the thing a lot of people, like my friends back home in the Midlands are like, weren't you scared being around these lads with guns? No, because, you know, often they're good They're good people put in a bad situation. They're not like criminals. They're not going about and like trying to recruit lads off the street. They're, they're, they, are, they are the lads off the street. They're part of it, you know, and they're saying, right, we're taking our land back. They're not saying, oh, we've got to make money and flashy cars and that. They're just normal lads. So, you know, initially the police were like, kind of, you're terrorists, and honestly, like I think as as it went on, I was 24 at the time. I was very young. Like my mate, I was with, um, was like a year younger. Another was a year older. And as it went on, I think the police kind of realised. One of the, one of them even kind of said to us, like, I don't know how this has all happened, but I know you're not a terrorist. But basically, we have to do our job. You know what I'm saying? So that's how it went. And eventually, we got sent to court. And I thought, great, we'll be let go. And then they were like off to maximum security prison you go. And I was like, oh no. <laughs> so we got moved on, you know. Hold on a sec then. So how do you establish a relationship with the militants yeah. to go and film with them? You can't yeah. just like show up and say, hey, we're the journal, we're journalists from the UK. Right, yeah. I mean, to be honest, with the Kurdish situation, there were so few reporters there. Like the war with ISIS was going on on the border as well. At the time, it was all very hardcore in Syria. No one was that interested in what was going on there. Still, they still aren't. You know, some horrific war crimes happened. NATO doesn't care. You know, EU doesn't care. No one cares. But a load of people got murdered, innocent people killed, and there's been no retribution for the for the mm -hmm. state. 
but it is what it is. Um, so that for me is like an ideal conflict. I like underreported stuff, you know, like, oh, no one knows about this. I want to go there and just say, hey, look, this is happening. That's all I want to do in my work. So I kind of, you know, I knew some Kurds from the community because I'd done a little bit of work on them before. From what community? Uh, from the Kurdish community, like the diaspora community mm. in the UK and I elsewhere. See. And, you know, I, I went to Istanbul in 2014. I filmed, like, basically kind of the the preemptive version of the group I'd later film with. They were having riots, they had handguns, but they weren't in all-out war at that time. So I filmed with them in, in Istanbul. And when I got back, someone contacted me and was like, look, we've seen what you did with that, that's cool, but if you want to see the real, like, group, we're here deep, deep in southeast Turkey in a place called Jizra. It's like, you know, three miles, four miles away from Syria. It's right on the border. It's completely different to Istanbul. So I said, yeah, look, look, I'm up for it. Like, you want us to come down? I'll fly there and you can you can see what we're about. And I was just very honest with them. I said, look, I'm not a PR guy. I'm not on your side. You know, I'm just a journalist. I, wanna, I, I understand that kids are being shot dead in the street. It's brutal. I do want to come and film and I do understand that. But just know that we're not your PR people, whatever. And I think they appreciated the honesty and they said, okay, come down. And we got there and it was very, ring this guy, ring that guy. And the funniest thing is I always notice in them kind of situations, like the boss man is the most unassuming person you'd meet. You know, we'd meet a shopkeeper kind of looking guy <laughs> and, and then we'd find out an hour later, like he's the commander that said you can go here. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, oh, okay. They're very smart, you know, in the way they do it. And yeah, eventually they just said, okay, we made one film there. And then when the war kicked off, they knew who I was by this point, and they said, look, you want to come back, be our guest. And it was great. We went back, and they just said, in you come. Like, you know, it was mad. It was very, we had complete access there, you know. So on the first visit then, what did you see? So the first visit, it was, they were, like, they'd set up roadblocks. Because a lot of the kids, there was some, you know, there was a kid in a hat, Kazanan, he was 12 years old. He'd been shot dead by the police. Police said it was nothing to do with us, and then footage came out of them shooting him. You know, like it was very brutal. And then another lad, Umit Kurt, he was 14. He'd been shot dead in the street. So there's a lot of weapons around there, and there's obviously the legend. There's this, like the legend, the stories of the militant group in the mountains. So the the youth there, the young men said, right, fuck this. Like we're not getting shot. Like you know what I mean. So they started forming barricades and they started taking over streets. So they would you know, do checkpoints, looking at the passport, looking at license. Now you were involved with the government, go away or they get shot or whatever. So I saw a lot of that. Um, there was also like a Kurdish jihadist group as well at the time in the town. <laughs> they were battling with them. And I remember when I went back, I said, oh, where is that group now? And they just said, gone. I was like, all right, <laughs> I get it. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Because, you know, this, this the PKK group, they're all secular. I mean, they're like a leftist group. They're not into jihad or anything like that. So it's, there was even clashing with their own people, technically. So there was a lot of that. It was very confusing. And then, like I said, a few months after I got back, something happens. The kind of pro-Kurdish party in Turkey, political party, not militant group, they started to get like a lot of traction in the um, in the polls because they were saying, look, we're for everybody. If you're a secular, you know, leftist Turk, whatever... We don't want to have fighting ethnically anymore. And the government decided, oh dear, they're getting too popular. And then a war started, you know, which is always the way. And then basically they said, look, we're in open war now. If you want to come, come. And when I got there, it was like, wow, yeah, like this is not checkpoints anymore. This is street to street fighting, actually. You know, it was mad. Which so, visit was it when the grenade went off by your ear? Oh man, that happened in 
Istanbul in 2014. Yeah, it was a sound grenade. Um, and I'm always moaning about it because my hearing's bad now. Yeah, and everyone say, you're so loud. It's on my ears, man. But yeah, basically, I was very young and kind of reckless, I think, when I first started out. And not realising, you know, when the police fire that, just get out of the way. And I was, like, moving around a little bit too much. And I remember looking at it and, like, turning my head like that. <laughs> and then I heard it go off. And then just, it was just ringing in my ear, you know. And ever since, my ears just... The left ear is 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 not been good, but it's it's just my own fault, really. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like my I own thought fault. what was interesting. Um, I heard you say that you like deaf sometimes, but other times you can hear little noises yeah, yeah. far away. So, yeah, exactly. So like I was explaining, yeah, that's the mad thing. Like if I'm watching a film, just me on my own in my house, I'll have to put the the subtitles on, and it's not like I can't hear it. It's, it would just be like the end of the sentence goes, but then I'll hear the clock ticking in the other room. You know what I mean? So it's really imbalanced. Um, I went to the doctors about it and they explained it all and I was like, okay, like fine, I'll have to go and get something sorted. But for the moment it's fine, you know. But it's it's just one of them things. I think there's a lot of journalists, especially doing war, that have picked things like this up over the years. You know what I mean? And it's it's gotta be expected, you know. It's not like poor me in my ear, it's just like tough luck, man, that's what happened to me, you know what I mean? All right, so on that first visit then, what did you see in terms of violence? Well, the first visit was, I mean, it, the violence was not as close, if you like, because it, it was barricades and the police had kind of moved back to the outer, like, you know, the outskirts of the town. It wasn't like, you know, you weren't seeing police shot dead in the street or anything like that. But like, at night times, the police would move these big armoured trucks into the neighbourhoods and the youth who were like incredibly well organised would get on the mic, uh, on the on the walkie-talkie and said, right, they've entered over here. And then a group from over here would would work out how to come around them so they could surround them, throwing like, you know, petrol bombs at them. And that that night we went out with them. We said, look, can we come with you? And they said, yeah, just stay, keep your head down if anything happens. And there was one area, there was one point on like the main strip where the police were firing, just, you know, just kind of harassing fire, like kind of fired in our direction, but we were in an alleyway. So it wasn't like directly at us sort of thing. And then and then it was like the lads with the Molotovs kind of stood back and then some other lads came with like a handgun. And it's like, oh, okay, they're the kind of like bigger lads, if you like. Um, again, though, like completely, not, not tough guys, just like they're the ones willing to go a bit further, I guess. And they come down and fired a few shots and then everybody ran away. And, you know, there was a lot of that kind of to and, to and fro. The next time I went, it was worse because it was like... We didn't really see the open combat, but the, the military were there at that point. So they were in the mountains. So you're in like a basin kind of, right? So the whole town is surrounded by these mountains. And you. I remember being in the hotel one day and just looking out the window and just seeing like, you know, the flash of the gunfire and hearing it. I was like, what is going on? It was just because there was the gorillas in the mountains and then the youth in the in the city. That was bad. You know, like that was quite bad. We saw a young girl who'd been injured, like she'd been shot. She was like 13. She had a shrapnel in her head. I think she had a bullet in her back. Yeah, and it's really sad because she couldn't go to the hospital because the military were arresting anybody that went because they were saying, well, they're a militant. To be fair to them, there were a lot of very young lads that were fighting, but this was, you know, a 13-year-old girl. She was clearly not a militant. She weren't a fighter. Um, and yeah, man, she just she just had this horrible wound. She was alive, but she just had this horrible wound. And I remember thinking like, Guys, sad man, like really sad, really grim situation. But 
So she just have to, she was just bleeding out, was she then? Well, she so she wasn't. Yeah, it wasn't quite like that. It wasn't like we didn't see it happen. If you like, it was like afterwards. It clearly had happened that week, but you know they'd done the best they can, and because of you know the long running battle, like a forty year war with the with the Kurds and the, the Turkish government, they have they do have like people that know how to stitch people up without having to go hospital or whatever. So they'd done the best they could. It was just seeping like. Um, it was like clear liquid, you know mm. what I mean? It was just clearly, it was getting infected. It had gone green. I remember the neck one had gone green. Um, and I remember we were just like, no, no, we don't need to film that. And the aunt was saying, no, you have to see this, which I kind of agree with. I think, you know, you should have to be shaken up by what's actually happening if you're living peacefully. And yeah, they just pulled the bandages off um, and she, they just said like, look, this happened, this happened. It's like, oof. Like. So that, that wasn't like seeing the violence, but that was more seeing the consequences of it like almost everyone we filmed with is dead now as well like like all of them I, I know one that survived and he's in prison forever and then the rest of them I'm talking like 20 30 people like all of them I found out have been killed since you know what I mean so yeah it was a it was a brutal conflict yeah I mean you talk about this very casually and it's not everyone's ideal foreign uh vacation is it no to go into a war-torn area and be hanging out with the guys shooting at the police yeah yeah i mean yeah. people watching this must be thinking fucking hell this guy's got some balls yeah i mean what's your adrenaline like in these situations Do you, you... i mean see it's just my job isn't it like i know what you're saying but I, like a lot of my mates back home are like you're fucking mad da -da. but it was like it's not it's not really like i'm not thinking that no no but like you gotta think like you're just there filming and asking questions when the bullets fly I'm just down, terrified. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, I'm not a tough guy by any means. I'm just like, right, get down, don't get shot. The lads that are, like, that are brave are the ones fighting. You know what I mean? Yeah. Whether, no matter which side they're on, there's a lot of bravery out there on, on the battlefield. You see it. And, and a lot of bravery as well, more so in civilians, actually, just living there, trying to live their life. Like They're the ones that I think, wow, that takes some real heart. You know, And they're just sick of they just want to live peaceful you know what i mean most yeah. wars like you'll go to everyone's just like sick to death of it they want to be peaceful and unfortunately they can't for whatever reasons but it is you know there is an adrenaline like buzz about it i guess but the the thing for me is i just find it interesting to to be there and talk to people you would never normally speak to just to experience things you would never in a, you know i'm from the east midlands from like a, a shitty little town I'd never imagined I'd be able to get to travel to these places and, and speak to these people. And for me, my job, I think, well, I think it's important to do. You know, like, I'm not trying to change the world or anything. I just think if people don't know about this, they should do. And I think where people are getting killed and it's really unjust or whatever, I think, well, that's probably quite important. <laughs> so Definitely. I think, right, off Definitely. I go. And I don't know, man, I do enjoy... I really enjoy the Middle East and I really enjoy the people there and I enjoy there's something about war that is I don't want to glorify it at all because it's not I'm not like a tough guy I'm not an adrenaline junkie I hate all that big tough guy goes to war not at all like I, trust me in jail I was terrified trust me but like there is a part of it where you just feel I don't know man like everyone's on a bit of an equal playing field you know the militants you have a certain respect for them they're like okay you came here to film this fair play you know, and there's just this weird kind of dimension you exist in it, it on the front line stuff that's just unlike anything else for me. It's the closest I've ever felt to like, right, this is real. Like, this is very real. 
There's no room for like fakers here. There's no room for. I just like that that environment of like everyone here knows why they're here and they're about it. And yeah, it's it's interesting. Not to say that it's like anthropological. Like I do get like it's their lives. It's very fucked up. I feel very bad for them. They're in the war. But there is that element to it. You know, I'm human. You can't lie. There is that like, wow, this is interesting. You know? That's fascinating. Especially how you said that it's that everybody's real, you know, there's no Yeah, there's, there's no, yeah. and like Your life's remember, on the line. You can't be fake, can you? Exactly. And yeah. it's like, you're not worrying about your debt. You're not worrying about like, oh, this guy doesn't like me online. Or like, who cares? When you're there, it's like, none of that matters. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? That's quite, there's something about that that is just, I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah. 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 All right. So we're going to go back to the jail then. You've been arrested. How many of you were arrested? What nationalities were they? Mm. And how long did it take them to give you some food? <laughs> um, there's certain things I can't go into too much because, believe it or not, the case is ongoing. Is it still? Five years later. Yeah, Holy shit. Yeah, yeah, it's mad. Um, so basically, there's three of us, me and my two friends who I was filming with. One was translator. One of the lads was Kurdish, so he got kept longer. You don't really want to be a Kurd getting arrested in a Turkish prison, you know? Um and yeah, man, we, we got arrested. We got food. I mean, we got bread. <laughs> you know, we got some bread. What we got was some bread honey. Like and honey. Yeah. And then one day we got like some tuna in a can. I remember. How many days did it take to get that? I think we, no, we got fed every day. Did you? <laughs> yeah, just about. Yeah, it was all right. It weren't too bad. Um, the bread was like, I remember the bread just being like a brick, but it's like, <laughs> I remember just thinking, well, you've ended up here, mate. Tough luck. You know what I mean? You got to deal with it. Put it in water. Yeah, <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. Um, when we got to the like max security jails, the food got better. It did. Yeah, it got better actually because we also when we're there, we're in like we're in like a terror prison, right? So we're not in main flow. You're not with each other, which I was glad of because there was all these ISIS prisoners. I was like, I don't want to be with them. You know what I mean? We could hear them and stuff shouting into our bit. What were they shouting? I don't even know, man. Like, I don't even know if they were shouting at us, but I think it was just, you know, shouting, whatever. But one day they did, I remember they like, they like pissed into some paper and like threw it over into our courtyard. I remember looking at it, like put my foot on it, thinking it was a letter and just like, mate, like, what'd you bother doing? (laughs) Why'd you do that? But honestly, it weren't as bad as you would think. It was just, it was traumatic because it was like, oh my God, I'm in jail. And you don't know when you're going to get out. That was the thing. If they'd have said, you're going to be here 10 days and then you're out. I'd have been like, all right, it's horrible, but I can deal with that. But they're coming in, the guards are telling us, like, like you know, trying to, trying to fuck you. They said, oh, you've got seven years, mate. And I'm like, what? And they're like, oh, didn't you hear? And I'm like, no. Like, what do you mean we got seven? You know, and then you're like, right, okay, they're obviously winding this up. But at the same time, I was just like, I'm not a good guy to be in that environment. Like, I couldn't, I just couldn't focus on anything else. I was just sitting there thinking, oh my God, like, this is not good. But yeah, like I said, we got better food there. I remember we went to the head kind of jailer, the like the head guy of the jail, the warden or whatever. I remember he was looking at us, just like, I could, even though I don't speak Turkish, I could tell he was like, what are you lot doing here? You know, you could tell that vibe. He was thinking, you've really messed up here. Like, And I, I remember like, you know, my friend was, he, the Kurdish lad, he could speak tur- uh, Turkish. He was saying to him, the guy kind of listened for a long time and he sat there like this. And he basically just said, I don't know what you've done but I know you're not terrorists. I'm going to put you in the best cell we've got. I mean, I don't want to see the bad cells, but it, it weren't that nice. <laughs> you know what I'm Can saying? Can you describe but it for us? It was just like, it was. so you went in, it, I, I remember thinking it felt like a massive toilet, the whole thing, you know? like It is, isn't it? A cell, you know, like, it, Well, yeah. you know if you go like Butlins and you got like the weird shower toilet area, it yeah. was like that, but it had an upstairs. But, you know, it was, 
we slept on the floor because I remember the beds were just gross, like stank. But it did have a courtyard. So we could walk around in the courtyard if we wanted, you know. Um, and you could see the sky, which was an improvement on our last <laughs> cell, you know what I mean? I mean, you could stretch your arms out, which was a be- better than the anti-terrorist cell. So I remember thinking, all right, like... And there was a shower as well. That was good. I was like, okay, there's a shower. We've got our own toilet, you know. Like, we don't have to, like, knock on a door. So that happened, yeah. What bedding did you have? It's just, like, this mad old bed with, like, rusty springs. And... um I remember it was just so hot up there as well, up on the top floor, that we took our things and put um like this weird flat kind of like mattress. I mean, you'll know what I mean. Like the the you know like it's very rough thing. Fling that on the floor, and we just all all three of us slept like next to each other on the floor like that. What was the temperature like? Just hot as hell. I mean, Turkey. We were in Adana at this point, so a very hot place in Turkey. No aircon, obviously. Um, <gasps> boiling hot, man. Just did that so keep you hot. awake? Yeah, it kept me awake, man. Yeah, it kept me awake. Like, my my like, mate, like my my mate, my other English mate who was there. He's from up north. He's from Wigan, and he was unfazed the whole time. Was he just unfazed? Wigan, man. shout out to Wigan. Yeah, man. Yeah, yeah. But I was just like, oh my god, this is so bad. I remember one night, like we were in a place where the water from the tap was like chlorinated for some reason. So we couldn't drink the water, you know what I mean? And that was the worst one. The wor- That was the first night in there actually before we saw the warden and that, I remember it just being like this, like we might die here just from, not from getting killed, just from like <laughs> heat, you know what I'm saying? But it did get better and then we got put in a deportation prison when we knew we were getting released and that was really much better because we were in... Well, we were in main flow with all these like ISIS guys, like Chechen ISIS, right? Because they'd pick them up at the border and they were like in the same jail as us because they were going to get deported back to Chechen or whatever. But you're eating breakfast with them. So I was like, oh, mate, like, please don't do anything. Do you know what I mean? Like I've got three days here. I've got to get out. So that was Did a Did you talk bad. to them? Yeah, I talked to them. Yeah, a few of them. There was one guy, um, one lad spoke English. Um, and it was really weird, you know, like there was... So, so let me, I should probably explain. So when you get deported, it's like you don't just go straight to the plane. It's like you're going into a different jail. I'm sure you've been deported, right? So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but, like, you know, you go in a different jail. And obviously, like, again, we're not criminals. So it's like, it, I don't think, some of them didn't know what to do with us. Some of them, like, they're terrorists. And others were like, they're clearly not. You know, like, I've actually done nothing wrong. So it was a bit of confusion. So we were in this, like, deportation prison and you're just in main flow, basically. You just it's it's kind of like like a, a kind of a, imagine a very cheap hostel, <laughs> but there's bars on the windows. You know what I mean? So we go in, we go in, and then there's one side is like all these ISIS fighters that they've caught coming from the border in Syria to Turkey. So they're lads that have there was lads with like open bullet wounds, and they basically will go into Turkey to get help in the hospital. Some of them allow, were allowed to get through. There's some journalists have done research on this. Like, there's articles about them literally getting treatment in the hospitals and being sent back. And there's others that they said, hey, you're ISIS. Hang on, go into, we're sending you back. So those guys are all in this deportation prison. All these, like, horrible Chechen ISIS guys. Then there's just normal immigrants, lads that are, like, left Afghanistan or wherever, and they've ended up in Turkey. They've been arrested as well. Um, and then there's lads like, like we're these two like random white lads turn up and everyone's like, what the hell are you doing here? Sort of thing. <laughs> so we turn up and there's like these lovely, like there's these two Afghan lads and there was this lovely like Iranian guy who just immediately like, were like come in our room. Like we're not jihadists. We'll look after you. Them lot, they're ISIS. And I was like, oh Christ, right. Okay. <laughs> so yeah. And I mean, I did talk, one of the Chechen ISIS guys, he spoke like perfect English 
And yeah, it was weird, man. You just end up in this weird space where it's like, I hate you, you hate me, but you know, we're both stuck in jail. Uh, and it, yeah, and it's weird, man. And you know, I talked to them, and there was the weirdest thing was some of them had come back over with their families, and they were under us. It was weird. Like there was women and children in the prison under our under our floor. And then one night, the Turkish guards let the the you know the lads see their kids. I remember sat in this room with this Chechen ISIS guy and his kid, and his his kids like offering me a lollipop, and I was like, "No, mate, you have it. No worries. Like, good lad." I just thinking this is so surreal, you know. But at did the he, same time, you're both human at one point, you know. Did he tell you his story, the Chechen? Nah, ISIS but guy? it was written all over his face, like you know. And there was this one guy we used to call him Jihadi Keith. Because, like, he was, you know, he's Chechen, and the Chechens are very, like, more white than we are, like, che like pale guys, you know, kind of caucus. And I remember just saying to my mate, he looks like like some lad from the Dolly called Keith or something, because he was, like, mad beard, and you know what I mean? And he didn't, he looked kind of out of place, and he had all these bullet wounds, and the other jihadists would, at night, there was a TV in this place, so we'd all sit in the TV room, um, they'd just smoke and drink tea all night, and, and he would, like massage this guy's arm because he'd been shot <laughs> and it was just the weird I remember the smell of deep heat we just sat there watching telly we can't understand the word of it there's like these ISIS guys in one corner our mates these like <laughs> Afghan lads in the other corner and you're all just kind of getting on one thing I do the way to like the way you could realise who was like a jihadist and who was just like you know standard chill Muslim or whatever whenever there was like a woman came on the TV they would go insane, like they'd erupt, they'd jump up, scream, get it off the telly. And it's like, you know, I'd look some Afghan lads that were looking after us and they'd be like, you know what I'm saying? You do it right, got it. There, stay away from them. Um, the last night before we actually got deported, they kicked off massively because um, some Syrian, so former Syrian rebels, like secular rebels, not the jihadists, not like, you know, Assad soldiers or anything, like the guys fighting Assad, they basically come to the conclusion that it's we've lost the war, it's too late, you know, so we're leaving. So they got picked up trying to get into Turkey. So they end up coming into the deportation prison with us. Lovely guys, really nice guys. Like one of them spoke perfect English. And, and it was my mate's birthday in the jail. <laughs> so they invited us into their room because they got their own space. They don't want to be with jihadists. They want their own space. And basically we just had a party and they're singing all these like anti-Assad songs. And um, we didn't have any alcohol, obviously, but they had sachets of Nescafe. So they're making us like the most, like, I mean, you know, one sachet is fine. There were like five sachets, like <laughs> a little bit of water. I, I don't know if they're trying to get feel high or something. But we were like, cheers, lads, celebrating, whatever. Really nice time. And there was this fat jihadist guy um, from Tajikistan. And he came in and was like, why are you celebrating with these kafar? You know, like being really just a horrible guy. And they basically stood up and were like, you came to our country and you brought the jihad here and you cut off the heads of Syrians. Like you have no place to tell me anything. Like this really amazing moment, man. I remember this lad just pointing at everyone saying, commando, commander, basically saying, these were all commanders. You're not, you're nothing to us sort of thing. You know what I mean? And they, again, they saved us. I think this lad... Like, was, I'd had enough of us. He's like, give me them two white lads. <laughs> like, I've had enough. And they were just like, nah, like, you're not. Like, And then I remember going back to my cell, uh, back to our room, as this young Palestinian lad, and he was fuming. And he basically said to me, through like broken English, he said, look, I'm Muslim, you're Christian. I'm not Christian, but, he, you know, that's his way of seeing it. He said, you're Christian. 
He's like, it doesn't matter. We're, you know, we're pals. I said, yeah, man, like, I agree, you know. And it was really nice just having all these... I tell you what, the, the way to explain it is, like, it was the perfect bubble to, like, understand the kind of Syrian war, actually, and the many different facets of it and different religious, you know, the shades of extremism and non-extremism and all of this mad stuff happened in three days, man. Wow. Mad, absolutely yeah. mad. But I wouldn't change it because I learned so much from it, you know. Like yeah. it, it was, it was traumatizing. Don't get me wrong, but just learned like so much in in such a short space of time. Yeah. So during your incarceration in Turkey, then you were out there as a war correspondent for yeah. Vice. Yes, yeah. So imagine we've got Vice legal people looking at it. We've yeah. got. The British Embassy looking at it. You've got international media looking at yeah. it. You've got your family yeah. looking at it. How is all that working out for you at, at that time? It was mad. And I just want to say advice. I mean, I don't work there anymore and I've had my own fallings, not fallings out, but I've had my own criticisms of the kind of direction they went in. But I will say Vice did everything. Like they went above and beyond, you know. And I was actually... I was what you call permalance, but I was like a freelancer basically. I was there every week working, but I was actually not on a full staff contract. So they could have very easily just been like, forget it. But they they did everything for us, man. Like they went, they did more than what they could have. To this day, we still have legal representation from them. Like they're helping us everywhere. They're amazing. All the legal team just like cannot thank them enough. So they have been great, absolutely brilliant in that respect. Um the embassy, I remember the first night we were in jail, like we managed to get one call. This is the only phone call we had the whole time. Can't remember how my mate, he he got hold. I think the the Turkish guards just went, here's the embassy. And they were just like, oh yeah, just, just sit tight sort of thing. And it was like 11 days later, we were like, right, we've been in four different prisons now. Like, you know, what's going on? Um, they weren't that helpful, but Vice did like an amazing thing. They spread awareness. Now there's a little bit of, contention in the kind of war correspondent community some people think you should immediately start spreading the word some think keep it quiet maybe try and do a deal with the government honestly there's no there's no there's no solid answer it depends on the case each case to be honest i think they did the right thing because i certainly noticed that when it hit the news the behavior from the guards changed very quickly they went from like very not nice to like saying We've treated you well, haven't we? We've treated you well. And I was like, well, you have arrested us with no evidence whatsoever. Like, But yeah, you know, I mean, they didn't beat us, you know. Um, you know, so it could have been a lot worse, you know. I mean, trust me, the prison we were in, Adana, like anyone just Google that and there's a lot of bad stuff happens in that prison. You know what I mean? How do so, you spell that? Uh, A-D-A-N-A, Adana prison, max security. You know, a lot of bad things happened there. Um, and we that didn't happen to us, you know what I mean, and 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 that that I'm thankful for. So yeah, so the guards didn't abuse us in that respect, um, and that was again I think because it was you know it was in the news, it was on the BBC News at one point. One thing that I really hated though was like I don't know, I hate this idea of like oh I've been in prison and it's like I don't. It's like I've not I've not done a bird like on that in that sense, you know what I mean? It's like I didn't actually do anything. Like I'm not a criminal. But to be called a criminal when you know you're completely innocent and we're just doing my job, like all three of us, we were just there, you know, risking our lives to say, look, we think this is bad. This is what we want to show the world. And, you know, when you get a totalitarian government that's like, oh, no, now you're a terrorist. It, it, you know, it's annoying. That for me it did my head a bit. I just thought, oh, that's that's really annoying. That any Because obviously until 
you get back and you can explain yourself and say, obviously, we didn't do anything. People are just reading these mad accounts, complete lies as well, like in the, you know, Turkish control, government controlled media, just absolute lies. They assisted them. They like we, we did nothing to help anyone. Like that's very strict because you could get in trouble in your own country. You know, I'm not I'm not a militant. I'm not a combatant. I'm just a journalist. You know what I mean? And to get arrested for that was like really annoying. Um, put my family through a lot of pressure. You know what I mean? And I how feel, how feel did bad. your family find out in the very beginning? And did you were you able to communicate with them by phone no. or letter or anything? No, nothing. We couldn't communicate with anybody. Um, we could see our lawyers every now and then. They would come in. Um, one of our lawyers, Tahir Elchi, God rest his soul, he was actually killed. He was shot dead in the street. Um, was he? Yeah, yeah. Very weird situation. Um, yeah, so we would see like people working for his firm. Um, but no, my, my family found out because Vice told them basically. As soon as Vice found out, they called um, my family and all of our family and said, this is the situation. This is what's happening. Um, and, you know, my family dealt with it well. You know, they, they're kind of smart people. They said, right, okay, it's going to get out eventually. Let's just whatever you can do, whatever you need, you know. Um, they handled it well. And when I got out, they were just like, right, you're back. They, I, you know, I, I didn't want any special treatment. I wasn't like particularly traumatized you know what i mean it was it was bad but i always think it's nowhere near as bad as the people there there were journalists right now in those prisons doing 20 years for nothing for literally doing exactly what we did we're why we got a red passport we got out you know what i'm saying those people are never getting out they're in dungeons so i think for me to be like oh poor me it's like not really there are so many people journalists still in the prisons there for doing their job, you know. So for me, I think the focus should always be on that. And when we got out, our friend Razul, he was still in there for like a hundred days more than us. So we had to be constantly um, campaigning. We did all this campaigning work to get him out. And then when he was out, I was just like, oh, it was just like bliss. That was the feeling of knowing he's no longer in the jail. Then I could kind of just go, right, this is done. We're good. Put it behind us. All good. Yeah. What about your mum? How was she over this? Well, she was all right, you know. <laughs> my mum's one of those people who's just like, get it done. You know what I mean? Like a very... Is that where you get it from then? I don't know. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. But she's very good. She's the sort of person you want in a crisis. You know what yeah. I mean? She's she's very no-nonsense, right? Move on, do this, do that. She, she's very good with that. And she kind of took on a role of like, kind of, you know, going around to everybody, updating them. He's at this stage, he's at that stage. Um, and yeah, man, she did well. Got out, she's like, you're right? I was like, yeah, good. She's like, all right. <laughs> you know, that was it. What a mum. Mm. You said your lawyer got shot to death. What were the circumstances of that? Yeah, really sad, man. So basically he got, um, there's nothing to do with our case as such, but he got arrested himself for basically going on the TV and saying the PKK, which was the militant group we were filming with, he went on TV and said, they're not a terrorist organisation, they're a resistance group. That was enough to get him arrested for terrorism. He was arrested just for saying that. Um, and then he did this He did this speech where he went to Diyarbakir, where I got arrested, and he went to this famous kind of monument, um, all cuffed up, and he had to do this. He did some kind of speech. I forget exactly what it was, but he was a guy that, you know, his whole life he believed in, you know, freedom for his people and the the ability to live peacefully with Turks and Kurds and whatever. So he was kind of reading this speech, and then there was a weird situation where two of the the militant, the youth guys that I'd been filming with, they got caught at a traffic stop. The police were like, 
we know them, about to arrest them, they pull out a gun, shoot, kill everybody, whatever. And they're running down a road, there's footage of it. And then the police just start firing at these kids. And in the crossfire, Tahir was killed. What the hell? Yeah, but it's all a bit, it's all very fishy. You know, I don't want to go into it, but it's all, yeah, it's something fishy happened. I think he was maybe shot on purpose. The government says that the, the Kurdish kid shot him which I don't know why they would because for his whole life he campaigned for Kurdish rights. So that seems a rather weird thing to do. Um, and then, you know, they say, well, they we think that the police kind of set that up to shoot him and then kind of, who knows what happened? I don't know. Maybe it was just a complete freak accident. You, you know, stray bullets, to be fair. like And in that area, it was like an ancient, it's been flattened now, but it was an ancient um, World Heritage site. And all the stones are like very high, very narrow alleyway so maybe a stray bullet did just hit him but weird <laughs> very weird yeah so during those days then inside the mm. Turkish prison how did you pass the time you said there was like a foreign language TV yeah did- well that was only in the deportation one so that was alright like that was fine you know that, and there was plenty of lads to talk to but um, just talking to each other really like trying to re- you know and the lads I was in with are like two of my closest friends you know and we were friends before anyway it wasn't just from that we were always very close um, and we were just like chatting. <sighs> there wasn't much to do, I'll be honest. I mean, we were having a lot of laugh at one point. I remember a guard banging the door and shouting something in Turkish, and our mate and you know our Kurdish mate in the cell next to us. I, I think he said something like that. Basically, the guy's saying like, "You're in jail. You're not meant to be laughing." <laughs> you know, <laughs> basically telling us to shut up. Because I remember me and my mate were having some laugh about something. <laughs> And we were just like giggling, man, because it's one of the ones where it's like, what can you do? You know, you, you're you're absolutely fucked, man. <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like, what are we going to do? Might as well just accept it and deal with it whatever way we can. There was definitely, I went, like, it was weird. You would go from like, ah, this is all right, we'll get out of this, to then a minute later, completely like, oh my God, they're going to kill us in here. That was a genuine worry at one point. I do remember thinking like, in the main flow, like when we were, when we was on the deportation jail, I remember our one lad that was in our cell, this Afghan lad, um, really nice guy. He basically showed us this like jail like shiv basically. So he made a knife out of um, like a teaspoon. He'd like sharpen the handle and glued it into a lighter. I don't want to give instructions on how to do it, but that's how he did it. And he was kind of saying like. You know, he's like, oh, I'll protect you with this. And I remember thinking like, why do we need protecting? Like, what's going on? You know. And I found out afterwards that the jihadists wanted to like do us some harm because I kept in touch with one of the Afghan lads that speaks English. He was an interpreter actually, and you know, and they ended up in in a jail unfortunately. Um, and he basically we spoke on Skype, and he was like, "Look, I didn't want to tell you when we were in there, but because I said, yeah, why do you, why were you constantly having an argument with this one guy?" He was like, "Oh, because because he would pray, they'd all pray in the same room, but he's like, look, I'm a Muslim, I'm not a jihadist, like, and he had these big disagreements with them." And he said, like, basically, they wanted to, yeah, they wanted to, like, stab you guys up. And I was like, oh. And he, he was saying, like, if you do that, I will tell them everything. I'll tell them. It. He basically, like, put his life on the line for us, actually, wow. without even saying a word okay, to us. Man. Don't know how true it was, but I, I believe it to be true. I remember yeah. the body language. I can see it. I knew there was something to do with us. Mm-hmm. And I remember this guy was a big guy. He, 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 he had, like, giantism, without a doubt. You know, that, that weird thing? And I remember he was like, yeah, I've just never stopped growing. <laughs> and I didn't really have the heart to tell him, like, that's a condition. Like, you know what I mean? But um, huge guy. I remember him just standing at the door sort of thing and being like, no, you know, stay out of here sort of thing. And I just afterwards I thought, 
Yeah, I can see that. I can see that that was possible. Yeah, great lad. Really nice guy. Really funny guy. He was constantly... On one hand, he was constantly trying to convert us to like religion, you know, just which was fine. He was like, come on, guys, you got to do this. I was like, no, man, it's not for me. And I'm not an atheist, but it's not for me. But then on the other hand, because he'd learned English in Afghanistan by watching like British TV, he kept talking about Little Britain. And he was telling us how like he loved Celine Dion. Like, and it was just so funny. And I was sitting there thinking like, this kid is brilliant. Like, I hope wherever he is now, like, I hope he's doing well, you know. Last I heard, he, he got released. And he was just like, had a job in Turkey, like as a waiter or something. Yeah, well, so. maybe you'll see this. Yeah, <laughs> good lad, real good lad. Put a comment down if you do. We'll put you back <laughs> in touch. What was your day of liberation like? Oh man, that was, that. honestly, like, I don't advise going to prison, but getting out is like, that feeling of just like, <laughs> oh, like, it's amazing, right? Like, and it was like, it was only 11 days I was inside. Mm. It wasn't like a, that long. But it was the constant back and forth and like the brutality and the like the kind of horror, to be honest, of some of the jails was just like flipping hell, mate. Like it was really, it was just nice to be like, okay, I'm going back to just normal, like everything's okay. Um, and I remember we went, me and my mate um, who, I was, who I was with, it's funny, we would, we were next to each other the whole way, you know, to kind of look out for each other. We were like not going any, like if you go toilet, I'll go to it. Like, you know what I mean? Like, just sticking with each other. Because we're in, the, in a foreign prison. We don't speak the language. And everybody there, all the guards hate us. You know what I mean? So, what you know, some of the guards are telling us, like, if I see you I'll, out on the field again, I'll kill you, no problem. So it was like, okay. Like, you know, so we were, we were, like, stuck together like glue. And then it was weird to be out. And then and then we were kind of still like it. We, like, we went and got hair cut together. You know what I mean? And it was like, it was hard to, like, separate from your pal. You know, it was a little bit, like... But I remember sitting, um, getting home and just being like, this is brilliant. Like a, a guy from Vice came all the way to Turkey to literally fly home with us. Like that's how much they looked after us. Real good guy. And they put us up in some mad flash hotel, ate lobster, like never eaten a lobster before or since. And they were like, Vice, like, don't leave the hotel because we don't know. Maybe some like weird press people might accost you. Obviously, like we were like, right, we're going out. We left the hotel immediately. And we was on Brick Lane. I remember sitting there, like, waiting outside for a haircut. Um, and just, like, you know, everyone going past. And I remember, you know, just seeing, like, every colour, every race, like, the gay people, this one. I remember I remember saying to her, I said, it's great, isn't it? And it was like, we were like, yeah, it's actually great. Like, this is great. Like, this is not being in, like, totalitarian, constant hate, constant hell. Don't get me wrong, this country has its problems. But I just remember having that feeling of, like, it's good being home. Like, you know what I mean? I like I like that it's free. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, to a degree. I mean, I think what the government's doing at the minute, they've got a lot of weird things going on. But, you know, uh, compared to there, it's it's definitely free. So I remember when I yeah. got back uh, from Arizona incarceration, I met a soldier. He just got back. And we were just looking at the world. And it was like... We could just see how everybody was just taking everything for granted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you just come from a dangerous environment. Yeah, yeah. Did you have? Did you feel that? I remember feeling like hyper aware. Yeah, but in a, yeah. But in a really happy way, actually. I was yeah, just yeah. so like I could almost like feel it was a bright sunny day as well. You know, like in London on a nice day, it's just perfect, man. I remember just thinking like feeling everyone else being happy and was just like, oh yeah, like <laughs> I love this, I love this place. Like, and then we just had like a solid. 
like six months of like the best times of my life. Honestly, like we were going out too much to be honest, but you know, we went <laughs> wild a bit. Me, me and my mate from jail, like just stuck to each other the same way. We went out and just, just like live life, like having the best times around the best people, man. I mean, honestly, if I could go back and live in that small time warp just after we got out, like the year after, I think I would. <laughs> you know what I mean? We had the maddest times. You know? Was the media on your case during that time? Do you know what? They weren't even really, actually. They were really understanding. I mean, it's, it's clear. I remember we're getting back once from, so within about four weeks, I was back out working. You know what I mean? And we went to, I remember we did some dock in Estonia, some other players. I remember coming back and getting pulled by like MI5. Obviously, it's, you know, it's something's gone on. This lad's been arrested for terrorism in a foreign country. It wasn't harsh. Like, they just said, come here, sir, so, right, whatever, bloke in a, you know, in a suit. And within about five minutes of explaining, he was like, yeah, no problem. Got it. Off you go. You know what I mean? Like, people understood, like, we're not terrorists. We're not, you know, we're not involved. We're just journalists, man. You know what I mean? Um, and, yeah, the media, like, we went on BBC, like, the radio in the morning. They were really nice, like, really cool, just like, how are you sort of thing. Um, did some interviews, I think The Guardian or something. And it was good because people weren't, like... I mean, tabloid press didn't really... They weren't interested. It wasn't which... You know, I'm, I'm no one, really. You know what I mean? I'm, not, I'm no one. It was just that story was quite big for a second. But, like, yeah, generally people were like, these kids are clearly not terrorists. You know what I mean? I think as well, um, there was a woman, Mira, like, she was kind of like the PR person for Vice at the time. And she was just, like, amazing. Like, basically making sure everything that was going out wasn't... We weren't getting accused of anything or any nonsense like that. Because that would be horrible to be like, what? Like, you know what I mean? But no, they were great. Yeah. So you said there was people in the dungeons doing decades for journalism in Turkey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you ever see any of those during your... Uh, do you no. know those stories? Well, I, know, I just know of, like, loads of... Basically, like, a lot of Turkish reporters, a lot of Kurdish reporters in the country who were, you know, trying to do what I was doing. They don't have the protections. It's their country. That's it. They're sent to prison. I, I know of a guy... You know, you can go to prison there now. There was a There was a guy that went online and said that the, the government... One guy looked like Gollum. And he got arrested and sent to jail. Like, it's mad. Like, that's insane. You know what I'm saying? So there is so many people in those jails. And honestly, my heart goes out to them because it's like, I don't know how they're going to get out. <laughs> they're probably not. You know, I mean, I think it's like a straight up seven years for terrorism. And, you know, anyone can get accused of terrorism now. You know, like, it's it's there, there was even a case. There's, um, believe it or not, there's a city called Batman in Turkey. And it's a Kurdish city. Yeah, Batman. B-A-T-M-A-M. Batman. Um, and they changed the governor. So like, um, yellow, red, green in that order. Yeah. Yellow, red, green is like Kurdish colors, like one of their flags. <laughs> and, and they changed the traffic lights because they were saying they look like Kurdish traffic lights, you know, it, and that's a government thing. There was an old man that got arrested for selling ice cream in yellow, red, green colors. Like it's insane. The level of, it's like, you know, it's almost like. Stalin level madness, you know what I'm saying? So it's a bad situation for a lot of the Kurds there. Um and a lot of Turks there as well. You know, I've got a lot of Turkish friends who a lot I know people that had just had to leave their whole families because they didn't agree with the same policies as the government and they were just getting harassed and so they've left. So yeah, you know, my heart really goes out to a lot of the people that was in the prison there. Um one weird thing I remember we saw like one day I was getting led out, um to smoke cigarettes basically like the only time to get out was like the guards were like do you smoke and I was like no 
And then my mates did, and they were like, okay, you wait. And I was like, hang on, wait, I smoke. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Because I was like, I want to go out. So I went out with them. And as I'm getting led out, I see this kid, like, nod at me. And I recognised, I was like, he was one of the fighters. And I was kind of like, shut the fuck up. Like, don't bring attention that we don't need to know each other in here. So I was actually seeing militants that they'd arrested. You know what I'm saying? And yeah. I remember one day, one of the guards was really in a bad mood. One of the officers that had been bringing us in, he'd been killed, you know, because of the skirmishes that were going on. I remember the head, the head guy that arrested us was actually bragging about, I don't really want to go into it legally, but he was bragging about murdering Kurds, basically. Uh, six months later, I saw that he got killed. He'd been killed by one of the militants. So what my point is, the wall was just so close. You know what I mean? So half the people that I was seeing in and out, probably kids we'd been filming with. Yeah. Mm. All right, before we expand on the satanic Nazis. Yeah. And the Hasidic ravers then. What attracted you to this line of work? Um, I think I've always been really interested in sort of, um, I don't want to say like the darker side of life, but like just things in life that are kind of unconventional. You know, even even from a kid, um, I was always, like I loved X-Files as a kid, like all kind of things like that. Not that I believed in all of that, but just I like that weird stuff. And I think... As I got older, that feeling of like being attracted to things that most people would be like, oh God, kind of developed. And then I got really interested in war and conflict. And I found that like, I, ju I just felt like wherever people are getting, you know, picking up arms and fighting for something, that's really interesting. Like that's a big step. You know, there's arguing and there's diplomatic relations, but when people break out into war, for me, that's like, wow, that's a solid line has been crossed, right? Mm. So I was always really interested and I thought, oh, would I dare go to war? I don't know. And eventually I was kind of writing things and I realized a lot of what I was kind of going towards was conflict. So I thought, well, I better go and see, you know, um, covered like riots and stuff. And I thought, yeah, kind of enjoy this. This is very out of, this is, you know, I come from a normal family, normal background, you know, no family's not rich or anything like that. Never traveled to like, you know, incredible places. So I was like, firstly, I'll get the chance to travel. Uh, uh, and secondly, like, you know, I'll get to experience things that I just never would otherwise, you know what I mean? So that was a part of it. And then it was like, well, I want to tell people about things. Like if, if this is happening, I would get a lot. I'm very passionate about it. I'll read it and I think this is awful. This is really unfair. And I'll tell people anyway, like, hey, mate, you seen about this? You know what I mean? Oh, this is bad or... You know, if someone's talking, you know, if there's like, I don't know, like a racist in the corner, I can't, I just can't say nothing. I have to be like, hey, and I feel like I, I thought I have to channel that into something. You know what I mean? So, yeah, long story short, I just thought, you know what? The only thing, you know, I left school, I think I got like one GCSE and that was in English because I've always been reading. My granddad, like God rest his soul, he died recently, but um, he was a, he was an immigrant from Ireland and he just said the only thing that kind of, kept him busy when he first got to England because he didn't know anyone really. He would just read, constantly reading, you know, like he didn't go really go to school or anything. So he'd constantly be reading. And he kind of told me, no matter what you do, keep reading because I completely fucked school up. You know, left at 16, no college, no uni. But I was always reading, always, 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 always. So I thought, you know, fuck it, I want to write my own stuff. You know, I want to be, I want someone to read my book. And yeah, man, and I just thought, you know what? I got to a point where I was like, I was about 20 and I was like, I was doing, I'd done every job you can think of. Like, you know, all of these rubbish, not rubbish jobs, but like, you know, warehouse work. I was laboring. I was worked in a suit shop. Like I just was 
going nowhere really because I couldn't hang on to these jobs because they weren't enough. I wanted to do more. So I said, right, I'm teaching myself. I don't care. I'm going to teach myself how to be a reporter. And then I just got like obsessed, like absolutely obsessed, like reading every book. Like I would even look and be like, what does that mean in that book? Like underline it, then Google it. Just, I just thought I have to know. And I got to a point where I think I kind of know what I'm doing here. And then eventually I started going out and doing stuff like off my own back. And then Vice News started, right? Like that's when it really kicked off for me. Like I, I got a little bit of a name for myself writing articles. You know, people like, oh, he's all right. He's got, he's got good reporting and whatever. And then Vice News started and I went and I said, look, I want to work here. And they were like, who are you? <laughs> you know what I mean? And then I remember the boss, like the man that became our boss, I went there and he was like, oh, I forgot you were coming. I'm come back another day. I was like, nah, fuck this, man. So I waited and waited and waited for like four hours and he came back in. And he was like, why are you still here? And I was like, mate, I'm waiting. Like, I want to, you know, I want to do this interview. So he was like, all right, I'll give you a shot. And then I kind of gave him some ideas. And I remember like I was back to, you know, I went back up to the Midlands and then I got a call and they were like, are you going to come and work for us then? I was like, really? And they were like, yeah, come on. I was like, all right, yeah. Like left there and then gone off the site. Like, you know, <laughs> gone. Um, and then I finally, last, what I was like, started in like February of 2014. And by, I think like October, I was like on the first front line, you know, I'd ever been on. It was like, wow. Like Which that, uh, Iraq. Yeah, I went to Iraq. Um, and I was just like, wow. Like this, that's when I realized like, yeah, this is for me. I like this. It feels like everything I was working towards, I get it, I understand the people, like it just, everything just went click. Like this works for me and yeah, it's done all right. So I think, you know, I think, you know, I've made a lot of mistakes in, in work as everybody does, but generally like, you know, I'm, I'm very happy with the output, yeah. So frontline in Iraq, what's that like? Honestly, like not a lot happened. <laughs> like <laughs> like it was, I, was in, I was in a place called the Kazir Front, which was like very close to Mosul at the time, which ISIS had hold of. It was so close that we could hear, like we could pick their radio up and you could listen to them on their radio talking to each other. But it wasn't like, I don't know, I think people get a different, I think people think the front line is like constant chaos. And it's not like 90% of the time is sitting around people just drinking tea and smoking cigarettes and chatting. And then when it happens, it's like, oh my God, it's crazy. But actually most of the time it's not open combat, you know what I mean? Urban combat, like urban conflict and like rebel groups, for me is a lot more interesting to film with because it's not like there's my point, there's yours, it's all everywhere, you know what I mean? But the front line like that, I mean, it was just a wasteland, you know, and it was just, I mean, it was, I mean, there was some firing, some shooting back and forth and we could see like, went to another place called Guerre where you could see ISIS in the binoculars. That was quite creepy. You can just see them walking <laughs> around and their flag. I was like, I just think it's fucking hell, man. Like, they're just over there, you know what I mean? But, um, you know, I didn't know, but like a year later, I'd be in jail with them, <laughs> you know what I mean? But, <laughs> but like at the time, it was just seemed so alien. Um, and yeah, from that on, I was like, yeah, this is for me. Um, and then got to do a lot more. Like, Vice gave me so many opportunities. I got to do a lot. So you said it was quiet on that particular occasion. When was it not quiet? When did it kick off on the front lines? I mean, on, I mean, in Turkey, like in Southeast Turkey, that was quite heavy. There was one point, one night, where I remember it was just like, the, the military, I think, were firing in from the mountains, just firing blind, kind of. And they'd shut the electric off to the town. You know, smart if you're any kind of militant, I guess. And I remember we were just like walking along this like alleyway. I remember one of the, the Kurdish lads, we were like on like a patrol with them and they're saying, don't worry, it's just harassing fire. 
And it's like, you can hear it. And I was like, I don't know if it is. <laughs> like, you know, these kids are fearless, you know, they're brave. Like they do this all the time. They're the guys that fight back, you know, but we're just like, oh God. And I remember just gunfight, hearing it from all directions and it's pitch black. I remember that. I remember feeling for a split second, like it, it, it ended very quickly and it was fine. But I remember just thinking for a second, like this could be really bad. You know what I mean? Um, Ukraine, like being under shelling there, that's horrible. Like shelling is horrible because... You know, some mortar rounds firing and you just have to kind of like that as you hear it. And then you, you hear it land and it's like, oh, thank God it hasn't landed on our head. You know what I mean? But what's the conflict yeah. there? Uh, the conflict between, so the Russian backed separatists and the Ukraine military part of East uh, Ukraine has been, I mean, Russia's there. They say, oh, it's not us. It's just pro-Russian people. I've been on both sides and Russia's there, <laughs> trust me. Um, but yeah, that, that is still ongoing right now. Like, that's like another kind of forgotten war. That is mad. It's like, it's almost like World War One in the in terms of like you've got these deep trenches and lads are just stuck in the trenches and it's like constant shelling back and forth and it's pretty static. You know, like it's a very weird situation. A lot of young men just dying out there still. Really sad. Um, so is it the people yeah. of Ukraine trying to shake off? The Russian control of yeah. Ukraine. Well, so they had a oh sorry, so they had um they had a revolution. Just just push it down because it's in, your, in front of your face. Down, 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 down. down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> sorry. Yeah. yeah. So so they had a revolution. Uh, what was it like? I don't know. Two twenty fourteen maybe, where you know the people rose up against what was like quite an authoritarian government, pro Russian government, um, and they rose up like it was very brutal, like fighting in the street. And eventually the government said, right, we're out. They left. So the people overthrew the government. Um, but then immediately that turned into a war. So the, you know, the Russian-backed government, Russia no longer had, you know, a control there anymore. So in the east of the country, where a lot of people do identify as ethnically Russian, even though they're in, you know, Ukraine, I guess kind of how, you know, some people are in Northern Ireland, you know what I mean? But anyway... So immediately, you know, people started setting up roadblocks and they were saying, right, okay, well, if you're Ukraine and you want to be close to Europe, we want to be close to Russia. And then Russia sent in a load of troops um, to help them and said, oh, no, we don't know who they are. I mean, they literally were sending in troops without, you know, without any patches. And everyone was going, who are you? They called them the little green men because they had no flags, no nothing. Then they took a place called Crimea and it's just like, now it's just been this ongoing constant battle from the trenches you know what i mean and it's very very harsh war i've been there in winter once and i think it was like minus 30 and you just yeah and it's just unbelievably cold and brutal and then you've got summer it's unbelievably hot like you know it's just i don't know it's a really bad situation and it's completely dropped out of the headlines you know what do you think will be the outcome of that war I think in 10 years, it will be ongoing the same way it is now. Same. It's one of them low-intensity wars where, like, maybe one or two people get killed a month. Mm. And then all of a sudden, at the start of this year, actually, Russia surrounded the area, sent loads of troops to the border, and everyone thought, right, it's going to be the next phase. And then they just retreated back to a base. And they were, like, just tricking, basically. You know what I, mean? <laughs> I think they were just testing the waters, you know what I mean? Yeah, but yeah. It, it's a bad situation. I mean... You have a problem where the Ukrainians do have an issue with like far right. There's a far right militia. So there is a problem with like fascist groups there. However, Russia uses that and says everybody there is a fascist. It's like, well, no, that's not true. In local elections, the fascist party got less than 3% of the vote and they voted in a Jewish president. 
It's like I'm pretty sure the whole country is not fascist. But Russia uses that and says, right, they're all fascist. We're protecting our people from fascism. Ironically, there's like loads of fascist people on the Russian side as well. So it's just one of these kind of, it's become like a real um, like football match for people that haven't been there. You get online, a lot of people online, are, I'm on this side or I'm on that side. And it's like, it's war, mate. It doesn't quite work like that. But Where have you seen the most death and destruction? Oof, boy. Um, probably, like, probably when I was in Iraq, because it's just like, it's so detached at that point, because it's just like, over there, as you're driving, it's like, that village is, that's gone now. Like, you, you know see, what I mean? You've seen corpses and stuff. Yeah, 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 like, unfortunately. Um, how, not, does, how does that affect you when you first start to see corpses? It's, it's not nice, you know, it's not nice, but it's kind of... I think if you're going to do this job, you, you kind of have to be prepared for that. You know what I'm saying? Um, Does the journalist try and document the corpses? Yeah, I think you have to. Like, I think, I mean, I think you obviously do it respectively, but I think, you know, you have to show people have died here. And if there's an open place where there's a corpse, it's like, well, you can't just be like, ignore that. You know I mean? I, I really believe that people, I don't believe in censoring things to make people feel more comfortable. I think... Yeah. If you're living safely and it's comfortable, you should at least be aware of the people that aren't. And sorry if that shakes you up a bit, but you have to be shook up a bit. I mean, don't get me wrong. I'm not going to, you know, if we're filming something and there's, you know, someone's brain is blown out, I'm not going to, I'm going to probably like censor that, you know, at least like blur it just for the respect of the family or whatever. You know what I'm saying? I mean, I don't think you need to put it out there like that. But I don't know, you know, if you hear... I remember uh, in the early days of Vice News, they got a lot of flack because I think they there was some footage of like the aftermath of like a suicide bombing and it was very brutal. There was like a head literally rolling, like like flinged along and they showed that footage but said they never should have showed it. And I said, well, maybe not. But if you hear on the news, there's been another suicide bombing in Afghanistan. I mean, you don't think of it, okay, it washes over you, right? If you see what that actually looks like, you might go, wow, oh, okay, I'll pay attention. And, you know, I think if you're paying attention, I don't think that's ever a bad thing, you know what I mean? I think they should show people the full extent of war because sugarcoats in it. Exactly, exactly. Because it's going to be their kids maybe that end up going to fight one because of some stupid politician has decided, you know? I mean, look at all, all British lads as well that died fighting in Iraq for what? You know, and it, it's like... What, what were they doing there? <laughs> they weren't protecting British sovereignty, let's be for honest. George, for George Bush and bloody right. Tony Blair. You know what I mean? It's like, I, you know, and I'm not... I, I get it. I understand. I know war isn't like black and white and I'm not a conspiracy theorist or anything, but it's like, look, people should at least be aware that that's what's going to be happening. You know what I mean? It, it's it's not a picnic, man. But I, honestly, I've actually been quite lucky in like my career. I've got other friends like doing this who've just seen like, fields of corpses and stuff oh, you know like horrible they gotta get therapy I, nah like some people do like so I, I mean I, I tried it once and I was like just weren't for me like I didn't really I didn't really feel like I needed it you know what upset you the most that you saw out of everything uh, I think what upset me the most was the young girl I said that had been mm. shot because it's a young girl you know and it's like it's just a young girl <laughs> it's a young kid man it's yeah. like you know it's just sad and also, I remember like interviewing an old lady uh, like in the ruins of our house, like her house had been um, bombed and she's like, I lived here my whole life and like, this is my house. You know, stuff like that really affects me. It's not so much seeing the corpse as such as like the people, like the aftermath of it. Like, 
And also, I remember um, there was a guy I met called Haval Kamal, which was like a commander of like the Kurdish fighters or whatever. And we met him and he was like a, a nice guy, like very kind, seemed kind. Yeah, he's a, I mean, he's a, all right, he's a tough guy. He's a brutal, like he fights. I'm sure he's done a lot of bad stuff, but you know, like a person to person, he seemed like a decent guy. He believed in what he was fighting for. And then when I got home out of being in prison, I got a, a, a picture sent to me of her, basically like one of the lads with one of the fighters out there still had my number and got in contact with me. And it was just a picture of Haval Kamal with his head blown out. And basically what happened is the police cornered him and instead of going to jail, he just he pulled a pin on a grenade next to his head. Oh yeah, man. And I remember seeing that and just being like, ooh, like, I thought, yeah, cheers, mate. Like, like could you not send me this, that graphic? But that, I remember thinking, well, that's a guy that I, I met and, you know, spoke to, whatever. And then seeing him like that, it's just like, ooh, that's, that's brutal, man, you know. Um, I know other reporters, are. I remember like back in the day, I remember other like war reporters would be like, why do you care? Like, I think some people want to be like the tough guy. I, I'm not a tough guy. Like, you know, I'm, like, I'm kind of sensitive to that. If like, if I've spent time with this person, you know, we've we've encountered violence together like on a front line, you know, like that, that, that means something actually, you know, when you experience certain extreme situations with a person, okay, I'm not saying I'm best friends with this militant, but it's like, you know, like they, that means something, you know. And then to find out, like, oh, okay, that kid's had his head blown out. For me, it's like, oh, that's that's such a shame, you know. And I remember one guy would say, like, why do you care? Why do you care? It's like, mate, well, why don't you care? Like, I think if, you, if you're if you in this job and you don't care about that, I think that you're doing it for the wrong reasons, you know. Yeah. You know. So how did you hook up with the satanic Nazis and what does 09A mean? <laughs> God, man, yeah. <laughs> oh, these guys. So basically... Um, <laughs> I, I should say, like, let me let me explain the Nazi side of it first, right? So, as as well as doing war and like conflict, I focus on like militant groups as well, and I'm very very deeply against like fascism, far right Nazism. Hate all that. Always have been. I've been raised like that. We don't like that in my family. You know what I'm saying? So, always been against that. Um, and I saw this one group was emerging. It was called Atomwaffen Division which means like atomic weapon division, basically. So they were a group in America who were like a militant neo-Nazi group um, and they were getting really big online, right? So I was looking at them and I was like, ooh, this is very interesting. They weren't, like at the time, a lot of like fascist groups were trying to be like alt-right and pretending like, oh no, we're not racist. We just, you know, that kind of carry on. But these guys were the opposite. They were like, we're racist, we're Nazis, we want to kill X, Y, and Z people. I was like, wow, that's very different. Right? And they were making all these like, for want of a better word, if you were a Nazi or that way inclined, they were the cool looking ones. They weren't, you know, you know, they weren't your Richard Spence or these trad losers. They were like trying to look cool. They were running around in their videos with, you know, doing military drills with weapons and fast paced music. And it was like, fucking hell, this is quite different. So I was like, right, I'm going to keep an eye on these lot. Long story short, they started killing people, you know, like not, I wouldn't, they didn't go like on a rampage to kill, but like one member here killed someone, one group there killed someone. And then eventually I started kind of putting this together. I was like, right, this group is like doing these killings. And it, it's, it's kind of pro by proxy. I mean, the main leaders of the group never really did anything, but younger people that they'd influenced did. Not because they told them to, but... You're, you're involved in this militant Nazi group that are hyper, hyper violent, 
like celebrating mass murderers. They think Anders Breivik is a great guy, you know, and they're making like graphics about them, like really hardcore stuff, you know, Hitler's their king and whatever. And then I noticed they started the lead. So, man, this is so weird. Um, <laughs> we like weird on this Mate, show. trust me, it's weird. So the leader gets, well, man, so, so let me just step back a bit. So the leader is this one lad, he, him and this other lad kind of started it. And one of the one of the weird parts of Atomwaffen is they're like apocalyptic Nazis. They're not your granddad's Nazis, you know. They're like they're very different. They don't like jack boots and all that. They like like weird kind of grunger type vibe, right? So they start looking to ISIS, and they're like, ISIS is good. ISIS wants to kill Jews. ISIS is very brutal, and they kind of wanted to be like, we kind of want to be like the far right, well, the Nazi version of ISIS, right? So within that, they kind of start being like, oh yeah, we like jihadism as we're Nazis, but we think jihadism's fine. Now actually there is, there's a long history of that actually dating back like like decades actually. They kind of re-spurned it if you like, you know? So one of their leading members actually converts to radical Islam. Like, yeah, I know, mad, right? So you got these, he was living in an apartment with the leader. who's this mad Nazi. Then this other lad, Dylan, I think, was it Dylan? Anyway, whatever, it's him. He becomes a militant jihadist. Then these two other guys live with them. They're, they're all members of the same group. One day, um, the jihadists um, executed the two other lads. <laughs> Yeah. Then the leader comes home and he's like, oh my God, what the hell? Rings the police. The police come. They find literally like piles of explosives in the in the basement, right? Now this kid, to be, you know, not to be fair to him, but the kid, the the, the leader, uh, Brandon, the leader of Atomwaff and the guy that started it all, he's very smart, like incredibly smart. He's from a rich family. His parents were sending him money. His grandparents were sending him all this money. Um, and he was studying like like physics and stuff like that. Very interested in explosives. He said, oh, I just wanted to make my own fireworks. But then when you see the crime, like photos, like I, I got hold of all this evidence, like wanted to see it. You've got like piles of explosives next to like literally framed pictures of like Hitler and stuff like that. And like all these firearms, like this kid was planning something. I've seen some notes from his notebook. I think he was planning something. Like he planned an attack. So he, somehow this kid got like five years. That's all he got. Caught with all these explosives. I don't know. He got five years. The and other lad, that's he, in America? Yeah. Only five years? Only five years, mate. Yeah, yeah. I Was don't he know working what. with intelligence? I, he, well, do you know what? He, at that time, there wasn't enough of them. I, he couldn't have given them that much, actually. But anyway, he goes into jail. The other lad obviously gets arrested for murder. The other two kids are dead. Atomwaffen kind of now enters its next stage. There's another guy who takes over... To give you an idea of how disgusting this guy is, his code name, so they all had code names, he chose the code name Rape. Right, yeah, like this guy is a real <sighs> scumbag. And him and a load of other guys get involved with Atomwaffen and it starts changing. It goes from like militant Nazism to like weird like occultist stuff. So I start noticing on their website there's a picture of Charles Manson. I was like, what? Like, picture of Charles Manson next to... Now, this is where the O9A stuff comes in. So before all of this, I've always been interested in the occult. Um, I don't... 99% of it, I think it's all bollocks. I don't believe in it. But I just find people that do very interesting. If you believe in it, fine. That's fine. But for me, I just... It's interesting. But I've been interested in the way that, like... 
real Satanists. So you've got the Church of Satan, which is just like edgy atheists. Like real Satanists that are like doing weird rituals. Like I've always found that interesting. Like what the fuck? Like, you know? So there is a group that started in Britain called the Order of Nine Angles. Now they're like kind of kind of satanic, but not quite. I mean, they worship... It's so complicated. They kind of worship the idea of demons, but they're really like against morality. Anything that's moral is, we don't care. So, you know, they've even had like pedophiles within their group. Yeah, it's disgusting. Like real nasty shit. A lot of them are neo-Nazis um, because anything that is, you know, oh, they did a Holocaust, good, that's good. You know, that's what they think. So I was always looking at Order of Nine Angles. It's a very small group. They've not really done a lot. You know, but as Atom Waffen starts growing, by this time they had about five murders under their belt. And then I look on their website one day and they've got this book. And it's like, this is the necessary reading to be an Atom Waffen. And it's like, you know, Mind Kampf, all that bullshit. There's a, their main book was a book called Siege, all this Nazi stuff, Turner Diaries. And then there's this book called um, Iron Gates, which was basically. A, a faction of Order of Nine Angles in the US wrote this insane, horrible book. It's a fiction book, but it's about like this far-right militant group, you know, ruling over the wastes of post-apocalyptic America. The book starts with them sacrificing a baby, like horrible shit, really badly written, it's trash. But I'd read it because it's like as a part of my research and I was like, what the fuck? Like, how were they involved so i was like right i've got to get on this now this is so interesting so basically this militant nazi group in the u.s which was kind of trying to present themselves as an armed militia at this point you know they had a lot of members they had cells all over america i think they had like 20 different cells like upward of like hundreds of members at this point and starting to get like okay this is dangerous now like they're killing people there was a young lad um blaze bernstein he was a gay Jewish kid, and then a guy that was a member of Atomwaffen killed him. You know, you can understand why. You know, it's a prime target for these scumbags. So that all happened. Um, and then um, I started infiltrating there. Like, they had like a secret chat. It wasn't very secret. They're pretty bad at doing it. But we infiltrated it, and it turned out there was like an element within Atomwaffen that was worshipping the ideas of Order of Nine Angles. And ironically, you know, people used to call it order of no members because <laughs> it was like some people were like they, they probably don't even really exist. You know what I mean? Now, I should say the guy that started Order of Nine Angles is a guy called David Mayat, who was a famous neo-Nazi in Britain in the 80s. He was close to the nail bomber, you know, the Brixton nail bomber. Um, and then he became he went from neo-Nazi to militant jihadist. Yeah, he did the same shit. And then he founded this weird satanic organization. He claims it's not him, it's him, he did it. Um, he's very old now. But anyway, so they even started making graphics of him. So I was like, man, this is crazy. So they've actually, they kind of gave birth to the Order of Nine Angles in a way. Now it was around, it's been around since like early 60s, right? But um, it was very fringe. Now, by being a militant Nazi group and taking on their kind of iconography and saying we worship them, we like them, they kind of gave it new life, if you like. And now Order of Nine Angles is spreading again, you know, and it's, the, and, and everyone, people might listen to this and think, this is some mad bullshit, this is crazy. Go and look at my work. But the, the thing that will, like, to say that this is not bullshit, right now, Britain, America, and Australia are considering designating the Order of Nine Angles a terror group. 
So it's like, you know, the authorities get it. There's enough kids are being influenced by this to do something. There was a guy in Canada recently. He was, um, you know, a member of the Order of Nine Angles and he killed a Sikh guy, I think it was. You know, in their teachings, they say we should kill people, cull, they call it culling. It's all mad. <laughs> it's very <laughs> mad. Don't get me wrong. There is no mass satanic spree of them most of them will never kill anyone most of them will never do anything most of them are like edgy teenagers but it only takes one you know there was one in britain um recently he's been arrested like twice for like pedophilic stuff he runs his own little they call it nexion so he runs his own little cell in yorkshire it's nasty you know it's disgusting it's horrible stuff and if you don't think it's real jake has interviewed one of them yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, on his, it's on his channel. I listen to it. Weird, isn't it? Do you want to tell the people what his philosophy is? Oh, God, I don't even know if he knows. <laughs> so they, the thing is, they try and, like, jump through all these weird hoops. They, it's this thing of, like, anyone that's not us is too dumb to understand, you know? And they, they'll try and say, oh, Hanrahan, you're wrong about this, you're wrong about this. And I said, all right, look, come on the podcast, we'll talk then. And there's a lot of stuff where it's like, I'm not wrong. You're just trying to spin it a different way. And certainly now they're trying to spin it differently because they're actually really worried that they're going to get designated a terror group because that's going to fuck up a lot of stuff for them. Um, so they're now trying to say like, oh, oh, we're not actually Nazis. Like the guy that was doing it, I'm interviewing, he's like, we're not Nazis. I said, mate, like I'm looking at your website. You have a picture of Hitler on it. <laughs> and they refer to Hitler as what what is considered like a, a god. And it's like, <laughs> you do look a bit Nazi doing that. And they argue that, no, no, it's the philosophy of National Socialism because that's the most morally reprehensible thing in society. So we like whatever's anti-moral, right? But then I said, well, you... But this specific guy said he's against the paedophile stuff because there, there is a fringe part of the Order of Nine Angles. Not all of them, but there is some of them that literally condone that yeah it's just right like the most disgusting shit ever and they're like well it's pure evil and if you can be they they kind of believe that to be pure evil you ascend if you can ascend all like morals you almost become a different being it's kind of like the nietzsche's like ubermensch mentality but the most fucked up evil version of it you know what i mean yeah um and yeah, man, and, and, and I, but then I said to him, well, you said you're against, you know, the paedophile aspect of it. He said, I am. I said, well, that's the most morally reprehensible thing. You know what I mean? So then he's like, uh, you know, like he couldn't really, he was kind of, he didn't really know what to say. Now, in a way, you know, he doesn't speak for all of the Order of Nine Angles. They say, oh, no one is actually a member. It's an ideology you take on, but that's just semantics, you know. If you take on the ideology of Christianity, you're a Christian. If you take on the ideology of Islam, you're Muslim. You know, you can't say, oh, you take on the ideology of O9A, but no, there's no members. Of course there's members, you know. And they have a higher up, they have a hierarchy, so therefore they're members. Um, and I know that, you know, they've influenced, well, there's actually been some recent cases in Britain. I think it was like the youngest um, terror arrest recently. I think it was this year. I think the lab was 13 years old far-right kid, I think he was planning a shooting or wanted to build a bomb, one of them things, yeah. And they found oh, nine a literature on his computer. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's, you know, it's it's in, it's because of the far-right stuff, they're now a part, it's like a new culture of far-right stuff. I call it like esoteric, like Nazi apocalyptic stuff. Like it's that, it's like apocalyptic Nazi occult. It's all very like, it's a scene, right? Like if you're like some little fucking fascist, 
and you're like, you know, you've got a few brain cells short, you're going to be like, oh, that's cool. You know, like that's the edgiest thing. It's like in my school, like some mad kids are like Slipknot. Cool. Like Slipknot's cool, whatever. But I was like, oh man, them kids are fucking mad. Like now it's like in the new age we're in, these kids are now going for that. Most of them will probably go out of it, but some of them won't. Some of them will plan terror attacks. You know what I'm saying? So, so the guy you interviewed then, how did that come about and who was he? Well, I'd done like a few... I'd seen again. I'd seen a lot of nonsense online about the Order of Nine Angles. There's a lot of people trying to make it seem way bigger than it is. There's all these conspiracy theories to it, and like I'm like, look, it's mad enough as it is. You, we don't need to add bullshit to it. And when you do that, you just make all of us look stupid. So I started being like, right, here's some proper like you know work on it. I had um, a good friend of mine, a BBC journalist called Daniel De Simone. He's done loads of work on it more than I have probably on Order of Nine Angles. So he came onto my podcast, Popular Front, and yeah, we spoke about it, talking about how they've influenced terror attacks and stuff like this. We did all that, and then obviously they wrote like a response on their website, like, you're so wrong, like everything you said is wrong, you're shit journalist, you know, get this all the time. Like, all right, cool, whatever. So I, I, just, I just messaged them and said, look, why don't you come on then? Oh, what? So you can do what? I said, look, I'll unedit it. The, the thing is completely unedited. I said, say what you want, but I am going to challenge you. You know what I'm saying? You're not just going to... This is not your PR moment, but like, you know, you come on the podcast and you can say what you want to say. So they said, all right. In the end, they sent someone. And to be honest, like, I don't think he did himself too many favors. Like, you know, if you listen to it, he kind of comes across pretty bad. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, he basically advocates for murdering people for sacrifice and says he wants to ruin people's lives and... You know, and it's like, it's not a good look. But that's how it kind of came about. You know, I was just really open with them. I said, look, I'm not playing no tricks. Come on, if you don't, do if you don't, do if you, you know, whatever. Do what you want, it's up to you. So they did. They said, yeah, all right, they came on. So, yeah. And what was his nationality? Wasn't he like Czechian or something? Yeah, I think it was from Serbia. Serbia. Yeah, I think so. so. Yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly. Um, I think he mentioned it in the episode. I can't remember, but I think Serbia. Yeah, he was definitely... In Eastern Europe, they got a few... I don't know, more active cells. In, in Romania, they had a really interesting group where they would actually film their own um, like rituals and they would put it out on the internet. And there was, Have you seen any of that? Huh? Have you seen them? The yeah, rituals? yeah. Well, they took all what the videos ha what happens, down. What happens in the rituals? Well, it's not a lot. I mean, they kind of dance around in these like black gowns. You know, it, it, it's, it's kind of like, it looks like kind of cheesy, to be honest. You know what I mean? It's a bit like what every Hollywood actor would think a ritual looks like. But they, they kind of dance around, they burn a candle, you know, stuff like that. But what was interesting to me was like, you know, we're in an age where nobody can be bothered to do anything but like Instagram. People will literally spend three hours scrolling. So when I was looking at it, I was like, well, they've actually managed to get like five or six people out into the woods in the middle of nowhere. They're filming it, you know what I mean? So I was like, okay, so there's some effort has gone in there. So there's some level of tangible belief system there. So then I started looking into that group. Then I found the Italian group. And they are like, I mean, anyone can go online and look at this. If it wasn't for all the literature, I would have just shrugged it off. There are thousands and thousands of pages of very detailed, intricate writings on this group. Like this is, it's just unbelievable. I think I did a sweep on their website and there was like over a thousand PDFs, some of which are like 300 pages long. Like, and it's filled with stuff some of them are travel logs like there's one i read the one the other day where there's like an italian female group of o9a 
they do because in the 09A to pass certain levels you have to go and do all this weird stuff live in the forest not eat for 40 days and all this mad stuff some people have actually been doing it and documenting it wow. yeah yeah like so it is there are some elements to it that's real I mean maybe all the people that have done that could fit in this room that's not a lot of people but with all the Nazi stuff the militancy the killings I just was like this is mad interesting man you know what I mean was there any documentation of them doing sacrifices then well, they claim that they've sacrificed humans and I've not seen one speck of evidence to suggest that they ever have. Now, the way they get around it is they say, oh, you can do it. It can be done in an accident. You can you can accidentally kill someone. Like, that's a good way of doing it. And so they'll say, oh, yeah, we this guy died in a car crash. That was us. I'm sure. <laughs> you know what I mean? And, and we do live in a day and age where if you... I don't know, you cut someone's brakes, you're going to get fucking found out. Like, you know what I mean? The police know. So I've not seen a single speck of evidence that any of them have done a murder. Now, I think... Actually, that's a lie. The guy in Canada that I said murdered someone. Yeah, he killed someone. But I don't know, did he do it as a sacrifice for the Order of Nine Angles or did he do it because he's a far-right guy and he saw a Sikh and wanted to kill him? You know, we don't know. Um, Because these are not like human sacrifices where they kidnap them, take them, surround them. It's not eyes wide shirt, you know... What they say is just do it like slyly, kill someone slyly, push them in the river. Now, I've seen there was one guy who was emailing me recently. There is some like weird things where it's like, oh, that's a bit odd. You know, you see, oh, maybe that's something. But again, you know, I'm a journalist, I'm not a conspiracy theorist. <laughs> and like, uh, uh, I need hard evidence to say, oh, yeah, it is. And there's, there's, there's not a shred of evidence that an actual, like, organized sacrifice took place. Now, I think maybe there has been. But I haven't seen it yet. You know what I'm saying? And I don't think... Look, maybe there has been because someone is that fucking tapped to do it. Maybe, you know, like I said, there's a lot of people in Romania or in Eastern Europe. It's probably maybe easier to get away with something like that in a, in a remote part there than it is in London. You know what I'm saying? So maybe they have done that. But then there's this other clause, which now, are them, now some of them say um, culling, which is you're meant to kill someone for 09A. Now it can be perceived as ruining their life. So you're not actually taking their life, you're ruining their life. So already they're kind of watering it down themselves. And I, I just think, I don't know. Like I asked that guy outright, I was like, have you ever killed anyone then for 09A? And he was like, I can't answer. And it's like, I'm pretty sure he hasn't. <laughs> I think if you'd have killed someone, you'd say no. <laughs> Surely you'd be like, no, because you don't want to get caught. But, I mean, look, if I found out tomorrow that, like, oh, there's been an attack and it's this nutter has killed someone and they did it because they believe in an eye, I wouldn't be surprised, you know. Um, it's not some... I know there's a lot of kind of... There's a new resurgence of satanic panic now, but there is hard evidence that the O9A exists and in their teachings themselves, they say that you should kill people and many neo-Nazi groups linked to them, like, many people have actually killed. You know what I'm saying? So... You could link it in that way, but it's not its not a direct sacrifice, if you know what I'm saying. Have you studied any other satanic organizations? Not really. I mean, I've looked into other stuff. I mean, I looked into a lot of the stuff in the 80s, and a lot of that just seemed to be like like satanic panic. You know what I mean? I think very, there you know, America was saying like, does your kid listen to Black Sabbath? Carefully might be a satanic, you know, a satanic guy. I think, you know, I, I know that... I know that there's some weird shit goes on, like, obviously, especially with, like, rich people. Like, obviously, we saw it at Epstein, right? All of that stuff is, like, so disgusting, and there's no way that it stopped with Epstein. You know, we're seeing it, we're seeing it. 
But the way I see it is like, I worry that some people are too quick to turn it into something more extravagant because look, things that are extravagant are fun. They're exciting, right? When it's sensational, I get it. I get what people do, but it's like, actually there are very real victims to this. Just calm down. Think about them. Don't turn, don't go into a snowball and let's focus on this, right? I know you've done stuff on it, right? It's like the victims, it's already bad enough, you know? And it's like, let's focus on that. And I have no doubt that that Epstein stuff goes goes much further. I mean, it. come on. It's clear, you know? Like, you're talking about, like, a fucking elite pedophile sex trafficking ring. Five years ago, people would have been like, oh, no, don't be ridiculous. Lo and behold, it's happened, you know? With all the most famous people in the world that we know of and grew up with. Right. If you, and if you want more on that, my new book just came out, Who Killed Epstein, Prince Andrew or Bill Clinton? Available worldwide oh, on Amazon. Andrew. What a little <laughs> shit he is, eh? God. That interview was hilarious. That's another thing, though, that like sickens me, though. I think, like, Prince Andrew is so closely linked to that. And the British media is kind of just like, oh, well. It's like, I mean, not not discounting, um, I forget her name, but um, the, the female reporter that did that incredible interview with him. And just like absolutely the BBC one, right? Emily Maitlis. That's it, right? Destroyed him. Like what she did there was a masterclass. She's great. But like other than that, you would think it's a bit more important. Like people should still be on it, I think. But I don't know. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's like jingoism. People love the royal family too much. I don't know. They're worried that the royal family won't give them the news stories if they go against yes. the Queen's favourite song. Yeah, I mean, look, like, I mean, you know, the Queen stubs her toe and I get a fucking alert from BBC News. It's like <laughs> Meghan Markle. It's like all this focus on her. It's like, hang on. There's a bloke literally directly linked who has agreed, who has admitted to hanging out with a convicted paedophile sex trafficker after he was convicted and you want to kick off with Meghan Markle. It's like, leave her alone, man. Focus on, you know, focus on this guy. For the victim's sake, I think, if anything, I think that's the thing. It's like the victims, the young girls, you know, that are just that got wrapped up in this or, or, well, not wrapped up in it, trapped in it, you know. It's just like anyone that's got a sister, anything like that, just think like you're just lucky that it wasn't your relative. You know, it could be anyone's. It's, it's just like... I don't know, it's disgusting. Have you seen what Melinda Gates has been saying about Bill Gates? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. She's got some real integrity. I like her. I read about her and I thought, I read the New York Times piece the other day and she'd been saying for a while, like, what the hell are you doing with him? I don't know about Bill Gates. I've not read into it much, but I read what she said. And I think, you know, it's this thing where even now I'm talking like this, I think, oh my God, you don't come across like a conspiracy theorist. (laughs) But this is like out there now. Like, you know, like this is... She's saying it, you know, and she's saying, like, why? And she's right. You know, if there's, I mean, you know, where I grew up, if if you find out there's a pedo on the street, you know, the pedo don't live there for much longer, you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, if your husband is hanging out with this pedo, you'd be like, what? You know, like, just because they're rich and famous, no. If you have any moral fiber, you say, that's that guy touches kids, he's scum, and that's that, you know, and you just... You know, I, I have my own opinions on what should be done with them, and, and you certainly shouldn't be doing business with them. You know, well said. It's the worst crime on earth, in my opinion. I think, indeed, yeah. yeah. And it causes so much chaos for that person for the rest of their right, life. Right, right, and for their families. Mm. And you know, I, I've known people um, that you know that acted out like mad kid at school, and then they've got had gone down a life like ended up with like I remember this kid from my school, OD'd on heroin. And then I heard that, like, oh, apparently he was getting touched or something as a kid. And it's like, right, so the knock-on effect of that for his whole life, you know what I mean? It's just destroyed him forever, you know? 
most of the people in prison are on heroin, and I speaking to them and getting their stories. Nearly all of them abused as kids, yeah. sexually abused. Terrible, isn't it? Yeah, 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 it's horrible. Yeah. yeah. And that's why our mission statement is to end the war on drugs and for the government to take all those resources and go after the predators. Yeah. All right, so as we get um, towards the end of this then, we'll finish on a, on a funnier note of the Hasidic ravers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. You've got you to gotta go yeah. on his channel and watch this video. Do you know what? I forgot all about that until you mentioned it earlier. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, so I went... I went to Israel to make, um, I think it was the first time I went there without covering the conflict, you know. I was like, right, let's go and do, like, something different. Uh, a good friend of mine, Oren Rosenfeld, like, great guy out there, producer. He, I was like, look, there's Boiler Room, like a, a music company here in the UK. They make, you know, DJ sets and documentaries. You know them. They started doing documentaries, and um, they said to me, oh, can you make some stuff for us? Like, you've got good connections in the Middle East. We want to do something in the Middle East. I was like, man, I know about war. I don't know about like music and that. So I contacted Oren and he was like, look, I've got the best thing. There's these, basically it's a, a sect of um, Hasidic Jews that they celebrate by dancing, right? So they run through the streets dancing. It, it goes back to a long way though. There was a famous, um, their rabbi was called Rabbi Nachman and he basically introduced it. Like he said, we shouldn't be miserable <laughs> We have to be fun. And he basically just, yeah, yeah, he invented this thing where he's just dancing everywhere, like having like mad fun back in the day. And it's it survived this long. And basically they drive around Israel and they just they just stop in the middle of the street. They jump out of their van playing like uh, trance. They're willing to like... It's brilliant. Yeah, trance it's music. Brilliant. Hard, hard like club music. And they just dance and dance and dance and they just give out these flyers and like, we're the Rabbi Nachman, like we, we do this. So we spent like a week just traveling with them filming and it was so much fun, man. <laughs> the best thing I was saying to you earlier, the best thing is we were like, all the other Hasidic guys hate them. Like they hate them. And um, we go to this like really like, you know, sacred synagogue up in, uh, it was near the Golan Heights actually. Um, and we went up there and the Rabbi Nachman like turn up, music banging, their fist bumping the whole way. And they they they, they got like, you know, they got the, the uh, I don't know, the, Dreads, I don't know what you would call them. I don't want to be offensive. I don't know what you call them. But the, the, the twirls, they wear all the all the all the um, Hasidic stuff. But they've also got like shades on, and they got wear trainers, and and they're all dancing around. And everyone else at the synagogue just like hates them. Like, and I I like people like that. You know, people that kind of. I don't like overly pious people. Like in any, not just religion. You know, I like people that rub people up the wrong way, and I love these guys. And a lot of them, um, you know, we found out are from like very poor backgrounds. They're from like literally like the hood in uh, in, in Tel Aviv. I remember we actually went to where they record their music. Um, <laughs> and there was this guy comes running after, running around the corner like some criminal. He had a knife. And we were like, what the fuck? And he's like, have you seen my whore? And we were like, whoa, like who the fuck? Are you? you know, like we were rude. And I was like, fuck you, man. He's like, no, no. Like basically he was a pimp. And he like like some girl had ran away, and I was like, "This is like the maddest, sketchiest area." And I was like, "Fuck this guy!" Um, and that's where they lived, you know. Most of them lived there, so they're from like real like kind of hood background. And a lot of them were like in trouble or whatever. And then they found Rabbi Nachman, and they were like, "That's fun." And actually, what they do is like really positive, you know. They're all about spreading happiness. Sure, they're like very religious, you know. They were trying to get like saying to me like. You should convert. It's like, no, I don't want to. Thank you. Like, you know, I don't want to, you know, but they were nice guys, you know, like really nice guys. And it's just, it's unfortunate the doc never went out because 
there was some like dispute with boiler room, some like very minor detail. It got put on the back burner and then, you know, it just never happened. But I myself put like a little trailer out and <laughs> this is what you're referring to. And it, I mean, link, link to trailer will be in the description yeah, box. Yeah, you, you can't watch that and not realize that that would have been an amazing documentary. And that is the way to live. Yeah. Happiness, dancing and trance music. That's the meaning of life right there. Yeah, great guys, man. Very fun. Didn't you go swimming with them? Yeah, yeah. So that's <laughs> thanks for bringing that up. Um, yeah, so they went to um, I don't know much about Judaism. I don't want to offend anyone, but a mitvah. I think mitvah is like a, a holy, I don't know, like spring or whatever. So we go to the mountain area, and they're like, "Oh, we're gonna wash in the mitvah. You have to do it with us." So you, you get bollock naked, and you just jump in the holy spring with everybody. I was like, "Fuck it, I'll do that." Like whatever. Like I like you know I like if you're involved with people. I think it's always good to show like. Yeah, I'm up for that. Like, I'm not like, uh, you know, I'm not, I'm not like a prude. I'm not like, oh, like, you know, a lot of reporters, they don't get good access because they want to stand on the sidelines and be this like, we're here, you know, that like old school vibe. I'm always like, nah, let's go, let's go. Like, you know, I've eaten with refugees in, in Calais, like anything. I don't mind. I'm not squeamish. Um, not that I will be. It's some of the best food I've ever had. <laughs> but, but you know what I mean? I, I don't mind getting stuck in. So I said, fuck it. All right, I'll, I'll come for a naked swim with all these mad guys, you know? So we drive all the way to this, <laughs> this ancient mitvah. They said it's it's never, ever run out. It's been going since God came. Get there, it's dried out. All the water's gone. So I was like, are you sure, lads? And they were like, oh, oh, uh, it's not this one. So we, we drive to another one. And like the, the one we were at was like rocks. It was clearly, it was a like natural spring, but something's happened to it. I don't know, maybe a rock blocked it, whatever. Then the next one we get to, it's like there's concrete, there's rebar poking out. There's like graffiti sprayed on there. I mean, it don't look like a pool. It's like like a bomb is at the ground or something. <laughs> I was like, mm. I was like, all right, whatever, man. Like, I look at the water. I said, you guys sure this is like this is legit a spring? And they're like, of course, of course. This is what we're talking about. Even they were like looking at each other, and I thought, whatever, man. Like, I don't want to be rude. I'm not, you know, I don't want to. I said, fine, I'll do it. It's in the middle of this weird kind of like, I don't know, like olive field as well like orchard it just was weird the whole thing was off so we got in the pool me and the cameraman as well it's really nice guys film with this Australian cameraman we get in and I remember they said you have to put your head under and I remember seeing this fucking baby wipe like go past my face and I thought nah I thought this ain't this, this ain't ancient water this ain't holy water man so I was like fuck that man got out Everyone get dressed. Oh, it's all cool. And I was looking. I said, I don't know about this. Whatever. I thought, I don't know. Maybe it came out of someone, whatever. Maybe it came off someone's foot. Then we go meet the rabbi. He was a really cool guy. He had this really beautiful um, bit of land in the middle of nowhere where you can see out throughout the whole thing. And the guys are like, oh, that's where we just were. And then I realized if you follow it, there's a waste processing plant, like, I don't know, 100 yards from this thing. And if you look, the pipes go in the ground. So I think what happened was this was a broken waste pipe and they just said, yeah, fuck it. That's the mitva. We'll use it. Like, and I knew that was it. I said to them, I was like, that's, a, that's attached to that. And they were like, nah. And I was like, yeah, it is. And they were like, maybe. <laughs> just like, right. But, you know, I survived. I didn't get, any, I didn't get ill or anything. But, yeah, the, the water was not... Um, <laughs> It was not, like, blessed by anything, I don't think, yeah. But it was, again, funny experience. I love stuff like that, you know. It's, it's a great, like, experience to have. And, uh, yeah. Unique, definitely. Yeah, yeah. So, for the viewers out there then watching this, how can they support you, Jake? You've got your Patreon, Gargoyle book, Popular Front, podcast, yeah. YouTube channel, socials. Yeah, so I run um, 
just just if I could just mention Popular Front quickly. So yeah, I, I now run my own. Um, it's like grass grassroots conflict journalism. We say you know we, we we it's like a media company. We only cover war and conflict, but we don't accept any money from like corporate business because I've seen that pollute the waters. You know, there's a, like you know Vice News. I loved it there, best time of my life. But when HBO bought them out, things started to go a bit weird. There was too much influence. And I was like, you know what? I don't really want that affecting anything I do going forward. So I said, when I start my own thing, I'll, I'll fund it grassroots. So what we do is we start a Patreon and we basically sell extra content. So for like five quid a month, you get extra bonus episodes, you know, there's podcast. There's, um, there's, we have this like whole community on Discord, which is just like amazing for research. We have a whole series on there, which is basically, um, it's called Too Cool for J School. It's kind of a joke, but J School is like journalism school. I never went to journalism school. I never went to college, uni, nothing. Mm-hmm. So what I've done is made a series getting all different reporters basically saying, watch this. If you want to be a reporter or whatever, this might help. That's all it is, you know, for free. Um, well, not for free. <laughs> it's for, if you're on the Patreon, but you know what I mean? It's not, it's going to cost you a lot less than uni. Um, so yeah, we have loads of stuff on there and we're funding it that way. And like, Every time, like more money that goes into the Patreon, we make more content, you know. So we went from making like very few documentaries just doing the podcast to now, like, I mean, our, our most successful documentary um, has done two million views in like less than six months, you know. So, and we've done all of that. We haven't spent a single penny on advertising, everything is grassroots. Believe it or not, like some random, like really cool, like celebrities got into it, started sharing our stuff. Like, it's been mad, like, but we haven't paid anyone anything. And I think that's why people like us. You know, it's like, there's no one, you know, you can you can say, oh, I hate you, Jay. Fine, that's cool. <laughs> but at least it's me you hate. And it's not like some corporate entity being like, oh, you have to do this, you know. And, you know, I like being fair. I, I don't like kind of, you know, hyper-capitalist businessman trying to dictate something to me because war reporting is very not black and white. And I don't want anyone kind of coming in and saying it should be like this. And if you do accept money from a big entity... I get it, that's how the world works, but just for me, I don't want that. You know, I do other work with big entities, like I do, you know, I'm making a podcast via Heart Radio, sure, but Popular Front stays like that always, you know? So yeah, so people can go uh, patreon.com slash popular front, or just go on youtube.com slash popular front, watch our documentaries, um, or search Popular Front on um, iTunes. My book as well, Gargoyle. The way to get that, just search Gargoyle Book. We're gonna have all the links below, yeah, below this video. I'm rubbish at this. Um, yeah, yeah. So if you yeah, so or go to gargoylebook.com, there's like links to buy it on Amazon. Basically, that's um so the subline is um reporting from front lines, uh trap houses and I can't remember what else. <laughs> but like, you know, it's like a book about um a mix of my reporting over the years. So you got, you know, there's there's an article about when I was in jail. There's an article about when I went to meet this like dark web drug dealer in Morocco, you know, f- stuff about when I was on the front line in Ukraine, Kurdistan, all sorts of stuff there. Yeah, so it's doing really well actually. I'm really surprised, but it's doing well. I'm not surprised. Well, I don't know, man. I, I didn't know if people would want to read about it. You know, like it's, it's such a weird mix of stuff, but I think they do. You know, I think they do. There's, I get this thing always right from commissioning editors. They say no one wants to know about that, and I've always said they do. Actually, they do. The only remit people need is, is that interesting? That's it. That's it. You know, that's it. And if it is, people will get involved, you know? Like you say, you know, you are addicted to the craziest stuff on YouTube. Well, that's the shit I watch at night to relax. Is yeah. it? I love watching, like, conspiracy stuff. 
you know? Yeah, yeah. But you've transferred into your life kind of extreme situation stuff. Yeah. Which um, people are endlessly fascinated with. Well, it's interesting, you know, and it's yeah. not just, the way I see it as well, it's not, I've always really hated these like, oh, this guy goes to the most dangerous place. I hate all that shit. Or like, you know, extreme with Ross Kemp. But nothing against Ross Kemp. I met him, he's a great guy. But you know what I mean? I don't think, it's like, okay, yeah, it's dangerous, whatever. But that that's not the most interesting element. The element is what you see within that world because it's mad, you know? Like when the rules are removed, the maddest stuff happens. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I've always been attracted to it. Um, the conspiracy stuff I watch, like, you know how most people will watch... I don't know, like, um, The Only Way is Essex, to unwind. We know it's full of shit. It's absolute trash, but, you know, it takes your brain away. I don't watch that. I watch, like, conspiracy stuff. I don't believe in it. I know it's bullshit, but I love it. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> so Alex again. Jones, man. Alex Jones is... I know he's a bastard, yeah, but he is funny. He is funny. <laughs> he's he's, got, he's I mean? got explosive He is Texas. funny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pierce Morgan. Rah! Oh my God. Yeah. <laughs> that guy, man. So if you've enjoyed this podcast, please go down in the description box and check out Jake's links. Let us know in the comments what you thought about it. Huge thank you to the new subscribers. Subscription logos in the corner of the screen. And huge thanks to Jake for driving up today in considerable traffic and, and getting here and um, regaling us with such fascinating stories from Turkish prison to pedo, satanic Nazis, <laughs> and Hasidic ravers. It's a bit mad, isn't it? doesn't get more eclectic <laughs> than that. Oh, Thanks, brother. Give us a hug. Thanks, mate. Yeah, Appreciate it. Yeah. Yeah, well